living God, help us to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. The Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 9, and can be found on page 1154 in your true Bible. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. The cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. The Gospel reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 24, page 1624 in your pew Bibles. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. 
Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Our epistle reading this morning comes from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This is the word of God for the people of God. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. When things go wrong in our lives, it's easy to blame ourselves. Oh, I wouldn't have gotten sick if I hadn't gone out in the cold the other day. I deserve this. If I weren't such a screw-up, my life would be so much better, and so on. And equally, when things go wrong in other people's lives, it can be easy to blame them. Oh, well, they must be lazy if they're so poor. If she hadn't dressed that way, that never would have happened to her. Now, there are certainly times in our lives in which we reap what we sow. If you drive too fast, don't be surprised when you get a speeding ticket. If you treat the people around you poorly, don't be surprised when you find yourself sitting alone. There are, of course, things we do in life that have direct consequences, but we also can't allow ourselves to let the guilt eat us up. And we can't lose our compassion and our sympathy for others by assuming they got what they deserved. Nobody deserves to be sick. Nobody deserves to be stuck in an unhealthy situation. Nobody deserves to be assaulted. Nobody deserves to be trapped in poverty. God offers healing to everyone. It's not a matter of punishment or favoritism. There are just times in our lives in which stuff goes wrong by no direct doing of our own. You don't get pneumonia because you're a bad person. Good people, hard workers, get laid off from time to time. Some people are just born into terrible situations before they even have a chance to do anything that would cause their own suffering. It can seem, however, that our passage in James wants to connect sin and sickness as cause and effect. In fact, Martin Luther hated this entire book of the Bible and wanted it taken out of the scriptures, or at least moved into the Apocrypha, that collection of Christian writings that didn't quite make the final cut in the development of the Bible as we know it. Because he thought it was too focused on works, not faith. But that's not how James is connecting sin and difficulty in this particular passage. He's not talking about crime and punishment, you get what you deserve, or placing blame and guilt. Just as our good works here on earth aren't what earn our way into heaven, sin and sickness are not a cause and its effect. God does not punish us 
by making us ill or weak or broken. However, both sin and pain are contrary to God's will, and both require prayer in order to find healing. And both require not just individual prayer, but communal prayer. The sick are told to call in the elders of the church to pray with them and anoint them with oil in God's name. Both sickness and sin make us vulnerable. They make us vulnerable to guilt, to isolation, to outside judgment from other people, to shame, and the list goes on. And just as we are called to pray with and for one another when we are physically sick or injured, we are called to pray with and for one another when we are spiritually sick or injured, which is, for the record, basically always. We are told to humble ourselves and ask for prayers of healing from those around us, and we are told to humble ourselves likewise in confession with one another. Those who need forgiveness, which is all of us, are called to pray in community with others so that we might receive God's forgiveness. Not so that God will forgive. God already did that once and for all in Jesus Christ. But so that we might live into and really accept that forgiveness. Forgiveness is to confession as healing is to praying with the ill. The Ill. These are both meant to be huge parts of our gathering times here as a community. Look at the big pieces of the service in our bulletin, how the scripture readings and the sermon are bookended by confession and intercessory prayer. Confession and pardon are how we prepare our hearts to hear God, a reminder that we are forgiven. And then after hearing the word, we pray together for healing of one another and of the world. Both when we confess and ask for forgiveness and when we are offering forgiveness to others, there are some common myths that we must dispel. None of these are supported by scripture and they actually get in the way of appropriate confession and true forgiveness. The first myth is that forgiveness means pretending that an injury was not a big deal or that we won't still hurt after we have forgiven not only are we diminishing the damage that was done to us by another person's wrong, if we pretend it wasn't a big deal, but we are not offering that person full forgiveness if we blow it off as not a big deal. We are offering them forgiveness for something less than what actually happened. We often assume that if we still hurt, we haven't fully forgiven just as when we are physically injured, though, we will get scars in our lives emotionally. They will be there until the moment of our full redemption. But that doesn't necessarily mean we haven't forgiven. Being forgiven doesn't mean that our sin didn't matter or that the consequences for ourselves and others will disappear. There may still be reparation or restoration that needs to come after we receive forgiveness from God and neighbor. Forgiveness also does not mean forgetting. Forgive and forget is not in scripture. I'm not advocating holding grudges, but rather learning from when we've been hurt. 
If we forget the ways in which others have hurt us, we lose our reference points for what not to do to other people, and we wind up hurting others. We forget which people we should be cautious around, and we wind up getting hurt again ourselves. And forgiveness does not mean going back to a time in a relationship before the hurt. There is huge growth in a relationship that comes from honest confession and forgiveness. Rather than forgive and forget, let's forgive and flower. If we forget where we have come from, we lose sight of how incredible God's forgiveness truly is. Forgiveness is not always one moment in time. More often than not, it is a process, and the deeper the hurt, the longer the process. If someone bumps into you on the street, it's easier to forgive them quickly than if a loved one betrays your trust in some way. But we need to allow ourselves the space to pray both alone and with others that we might manage to forgive, and we need to accept that it might take a long time to forgive. With God's forgiveness, it was given once and for all in Jesus Christ. But for many people, accepting that forgiveness for a particular sin or set of sins might be a long healing process. But that doesn't make you any less forgiven. Perhaps even more misunderstood than forgiveness is confession. And one of the biggest misconceptions about confession is that it is business only between an individual and God. This could not be further from what James is telling us here. In our summer read celebration of discipline, confession is the first discipline listed in the corporate disciplines section of the book. Scripture consistently tells us that confession is a corporate event. Confession belongs in the gatherings of the whole community because our sin hurts other people. We cannot pretend otherwise. Every lie we tell robs another person of truth. Every time we put our self-interests above another person, we rob them of their God-given dignity. Every time we refuse to apologize without our explanation of our side of the story, we fail to admit that we have sinned. Every time we refuse to admit we messed up or didn't handle things well or inadvertently hurt someone, we put another chip in not only our relationship with others, but in all of that other person's relationships as well. When we miscommunicate, when we discriminate, when we make light of other people's pain or try to blow it off, we harden our own hearts against the work of the Holy Spirit. Because our sin affects more people than just the sinner, it cannot be only between sinner and God. For real healing to occur, the whole community must confess and forgive together as well. Confession does not demand forgiveness from the other person. We cannot hinge our confession on the condition that the other person must forgive us. We do not confess in order to make excuses or to save face. Likewise, forgiveness does not demand confession. God has already forgiven every one of us in this room, regardless of our confession. But for us to live in the freedom of that forgiveness, we must confess and receive it. Confession does not try to explain itself. 
My kids like to make, I'm sorry, I just apologies. You know, I'm sorry, I just really wanted that toy you had. Or, I'm sorry, you just really made me mad and I couldn't help it. Those are not apologies. They are just excuses wrapped up in false, fake apologies. Confession is simply, I messed up. No ifs, ands, or buts. Another classic kid line is, I won't say I'm sorry because they don't want to forgive me for it. Or likewise, I won't forgive him until he says sorry. Now the reason we have so many misconceptions about confession and forgiveness is because confession and forgiveness are hard. We have to humble ourselves. We have to admit that we are not perfect, that we have screwed up, that perhaps we have wronged someone. Just like when we are physically ailing, we are vulnerable when we are in need of confession as well. It is humbling to ask for help in the form of your community praying for you. And it is humbling to ask for help in the form of making confession to those around you. It is humbling and difficult to forgive and to ask those around us to pray that we might forgive someone who has wronged us. But just as we must ask for others to pray for and with us when we are ailing physically, we must ask others to pray for and with us when we are ailing spiritually as well. As we listen to the musical meditation this morning, the reflection, I encourage you, if you have written something on that piece of paper, or if you have left it unwritten because you just can't bring yourself to write it down, take a moment to come up and to swish it around in that water and to leave it to dissolve um, or take it home with you and reflect on it for a while and do that at home. But I encourage you to take advantage of the loving, praying community that is around you this morning. Amen.